We'll be in Ruth chapter 3 if you want to head that direction. In the month of November, we're going through this book and uh, did so a couple years ago, uh, maybe seven or eight years ago. And I was listening to those podcasts, which is terrible. Uh, if ever you get to preach, don't go listen to your own podcast from seven years ago. It's brutal. Um, but I couldn't find my notes and I've been trying to, you know, maybe not reinvent the wheel a little bit, but... Uh, the last two, last two sermons have kind of had like different content, but this one, I just, I, um, I couldn't get away from a lot of the same ideas. And so, um, let me recap so far where we are in the, in the book of Ruth. Um, this is a a time period that's, it's, it's during the, the time of the, of the judges. And so if you were, Looking at the at the books of the Bible in order, this was a kind of a dark time in the history of of Israel. And a lot of difficulty. The book of Ruth is a story about a family, and it begins with a, a, a dad and a mom and their two boys, uh, or their two sons. We don't know how old they are necessarily, so I'll, just, I'll say that they're sons, and they live in Bethlehem, which is in Israel, and uh, there's a famine, and so they are. Uh, struggling to find food and everything. And so they'd make the decision to leave Bethlehem and to travel into a neighboring country to basically to be able to survive. And so they go to a country called Moab. And while they're there, uh, the two sons marry, uh, they marry local uh, women. So they marry Moabite wives. And that was kind of not really something that you did back then. Uh, these were countries that didn't really get along. And uh, if you know anything about the story of Israel, they're very, they're very big on like bloodline and all that kind of stuff. And so probably wasn't the most popular decision, but they were in a foreign country and they were, there's a famine back home. They didn't know how long they would be there, you know, so it all made sense. And so this, uh, family unit is there, the, the, the patriarch and his wife, and then their sons and their daughters-in-law, well, all three of the men pass away somehow. And, um, you're left with the mother-in-law and her two daughters-in-law. And so uh, word comes that back home in Bethlehem, the famine has ended, there's food. And so um, this mother-in-law named Naomi decides, I'm going to go back home because this is not my country. My husband has passed. Uh, I, have, I have no chance of survival here as a, foreign, a foreigner who's also a widow. Uh, so I'm going to go back home to Bethlehem. You girls stay here and uh, get married again and just live your, live your lives. One of them agrees. The other one says, no, um, I, uh, I'm family with you, and so I'm sticking by you. Uh, I'm going back with you to Bethlehem, and her name is Ruth. So Naomi and Ruth travel back to Bethlehem, and they find them, themselves um, at, there at the time where, where it's time to harvest all the crops. And you have these two widows, which in that time... Uh, they're basically, there was like this little, like there's a, the triumvirate of vulnerable people in that time were widows, orphans, and foreigners, like people who are traveling through uh, the foreign land. Those are the most vulnerable people in their society. And so Naomi, she was a widow, so that made her vulnerable. Uh, Ruth was a widow and a foreigner, so that made her two out of three. And so, but they were together and they were going to figure this out. And so they go back home and, and they're, their only choice was really to try to kind of scavenge for food. And one of the ways that they would do that is as the workers are going through the fields, harvesting all the crops, uh, anything that fell out of the basket uh, on, onto the ground, anything on the edges of the field, the, the, owner, the owners of the crops were told to leave those things on the ground and leave the edges of the field. 
so that the widows and the orphans and the foreigners could come through, and it was a way of taking care of the poor and the needy. And so, you know, modern day times we have soup kitchens. Well, this was kind of their own like social structure that God put in place of how to take care of the vulnerable. So Naomi and Ruth are uh, in need of food. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go, I'm going to jump in on one of these fields and just see what I can get, see what's left over. She finds herself in the, in the working in a field that's owned by a man named Boaz. And Boaz um, is a very worthy man. He uh, he honors the Lord. He knows the Lord. He is very generous with his crops. He's generous with his people. And so he sees Ruth out there gleaning and everything. And, and he's asking, oh, who is this? Who is this person? And they're, you know, they're like, well, she came here with Naomi and he knows Naomi because he's related to her husband who had passed away. There's like a relationship. Uh, yeah, they're relatives. And so, um, he says, okay, uh, he pulls Ruth aside and he's like, look, you, you take as much as you want and no one's going to harm you. Uh, you, you might be working with a bunch of roughnecks, but I've already made it clear that they are to keep their hands off of you. Uh, you will be safe here and I'll make sure you have more than enough. And so that just becomes the way that that's where she finds food for she and Naomi. And she does that all the way through the end, uh, all the way to the end of the season. And so she goes back and after that first day and Naomi's like, where'd you get all this barley? You know, where'd you get all this stuff from? And cause she came back with two weeks worth of stuff. And she says, well, I, I found a very generous, uh, own landowner. His name is Boaz. And you know, he gave us all this food. And if you look back in chapter two, verse 20, there's this first it says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he, meaning Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now to us, that doesn't really make, it it doesn't really ring uh, with as much meaning as it would have to them. This idea that he's one of our redeemers. Um, So, there were really there were two things that were very important in in Israel uh, as generations would uh, would live and die and uh, and just the natural like flow of life. It was very important that the family name like remain intact. So they always wanted male heirs, and that was always like whenever you would have kids, they like, your goal was to have as many boys as you could. Not because there's anything wrong with girls, but boys ensured that the family name will carry on. And so they wanted the, the family name to carry on, and they wanted all the land that uh, was in the, in their family, like within their tribe, to stay within their tribe. And so, you know, when God gives Israel the land, He divides it among the twelve different tribes, and so they wanted that to stay the stay the case. And so, sometimes whenever someone would, if you got into hard times and you had to sell some of your land. Uh, to pay a debt or something like that. They didn't want the land to be sold to someone outside of their tribe. And so they uh, had this, all these social constructs to where they could keep it within. So if one little family was struggling, then their like cousins or aunts and uncles or someone would come in and buy, like would give them the money for the land, but as long as it stayed within the family. So you had to have the family name and the family line both intact. They worked really, really hard for this to happen. So you had a, you had these two laws that we'll come up against uh, more a little bit more next week, where um, 
you had a, a leveret law, which was the way to keep deal with the family name. So if, if a man uh, passed away and he didn't have a son to pass his name to, then his brother would marry his widow and then they would, uh, they would have kids until they had a son. And that way the, there would be a son who was like in the same family line. That's how it was kind of a built in thing. And it was, uh, like there was a part of what it meant to be a brother to your brother is saying, if you die, I will marry your wife. And I'll make sure that we have a son and that your the family line carries on. Now, to us, that seems a little strange. Some of you are running those scenarios in your head, but don't do it. It's fruitless. Um, but back then, that was a normal thing, and that was very important to them so that the that name kept intact. Then you had something that was called a kins, kinsman redeemer or a family redeemer, and that had to do with the land. So the first one I just said that had dealt with the name. This was with the family land. And so if you had to sell your land to, um, in order to pay a debt or in order to have food or something like that, that's where you would have these family members would come in and they would pay the money. They would give you money for your land. That way it stayed within the same like family system. And in order to be a kinsman redeemer, there were, there were, two, there were two things that you had to meet. And so if you're taking notes, these would be worth writing down. Uh, there were two re- requirements. The first is that you had to be qualified. You had to be qualified to be a, a, a kinsman redeemer. And here's, here's what that means. There's, if you take those two words. So the first one, kinsman, like you had to be related to the, to the person. Like there had to be a family connection that was there. You couldn't, you couldn't just be like good buddies with them or have heard of them or something like that. You had to be related to the person. So you had to be a kinsman. And then you had to be a redeemer, meaning you had to have enough means to pay for the land that they were trying to sell. So you had to, like you couldn't, like impoverished people would not be qualified because they wouldn't have the money to put down to pay stuff. So being a kinsman redeemer was very costly in terms of, of like your finances and everything. So you had to be qualified, you had to be related, and you had to be, you had to have the means financially to buy the land. Um, so qualified was the first thing. The second thing is that you had to be willing. So with the Leveret law, where your brother, your brother would marry your widow and have a kid, like he didn't really have a choice. Like that was an obligation. But for a kinsman redeemer, you were not obligated. So you could be qualified, you could be related to the person, and you could have the money. But if you didn't want to redeem that land, you, you were not under any sort of obligation to do that. Um, and if you didn't want to do it, it would just go to the next, the next closest relative. So you could pass. You'd be like, oh, it's not really, it's, I don't really like that person. Or I, don't want to, I don't want to redeem that person. I don't want to buy that land. I don't want to do this whole deal. So it would just go to the next kinsman in line that was qualified and able. So you had to be willing. Um, culturally, with Naomi and Ruth being widows and them being like the most vulnerable people around, um, they were in a situation where their only hope for survival was to have a redeemer. Their only hope was to have someone come along who was qualified and willing to redeem, uh, to pay the price for their land to be given back to them. Uh, That's the only choice that they had. Um, Otherwise, it was an entire life of following after the the workers in the fields picking up the things that they drop and hoping that that's enough and wondering how are you going to make it during the off season, you know? So chapters one and two show us, 
that this man, Boaz, if you go back to that, that thing, there's, there's Ruth gleaning in the field with the workers. This guy, Boaz, that's being so generous with her, uh, we find out that he is a qualified redeemer, that he is related to, to Naomi, um, and we know that he is a person of means because he is a landowner. And that was like, that's how you got your money. So we know that he was qualified. He was related and he was uh, able. What we haven't figured out yet is, is he, is he willing? Is he willing to pay the price for this? We assume that there's a piece of land or something like that, that they probably had to sell like before the famine hit. Is he willing to pay the price to basically bring them back into the family, not only with the land, but also uh, in relationship? So that's where we find ourselves going to chapter 3. I know that's kind of a rough summary. Feel free to read it uh, all you want on your own. You'll pick up a lot more details than that. So let's look at uh, verse 1, chapter 3. Naomi, uh, the Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now rest, she's not talking about a nap. She's talking about, um, like, should I not seek a, like someone to redeem you so that you like you may be secure and your future can be like locked down? Um, verse two is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not do not make yourself known to the man. Until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Okay, so let's, let's hit pause right there. Um, we, of course, are going to read this story with Western 2019 eyes. Uh, in which case you read it and you're like, did she just tell her daughter-in-law to like take a shower and like get all dolled up and then sneak into this guy's bed while he's sleeping and like snuggle up to him and then wait for him to tell her what to do. Isn't it? It's a little weird when we read it that way. We're like, ah, that's kind of basically a weird summary of what uh, that paragraph just says. Um, we have to keep a couple of things in mind. Um, this is foreign to us, but this whole scenario would have been much more familiar to them. There are these, there, there are these customs and there are these things that to us seem so weird, but to them, it would have been a normal thing. Ruth is a foreigner so to her, this would have been completely, completely new. She doesn't really know how this whole kinsman redeemer thing works because she's a Moabite. And here she is in Israelite territory trying to figure out this Israelite custom. And so Naomi, who's a native, is like basically just coaching her along in how this is going, like how this all works. Um, when you are grieving, we see this throughout the Bible, there's a time of grieving 
where there were customs, you know, um, there, they would, they would wear certain things. They would cover their, cover their faces. They were, there would, uh, there's a certain, certain adornment to where you could walk through the town and you could see and identify the people who were still in, in mourning over some sort of loss. It was a visual thing. And so what Naomi is telling her is, uh, you need to stop dressing like a, like a grieving widow. And so you need to get cleaned up and put on some like normal clothes and put on some perfume and, and, and you need to do the things that in our culture communicate the grieving process has come to an end for me. Um, and again, don't think about that like Americans, because we know, we know grief goes on and on and on, all those kind of things. I'm not trying to say anything about that, but in their custom, there was a period of time where they said, okay, it's time to, uh, it's time to wash your face and it's time to put on some normal clothes and se- tell the world I'm no longer a, gr- a grieving widow. And so that's why, uh, like that's a part of why this scenario reads the way that it does is that Boaz would know exactly what that meant. Um, in that day. Look at verse 4. She tells her, When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So this seems a little bit bit shady as well. Um, It was a very common thing in their day to whenever they are, when it's it's time for them to... um, at a threshing floor when they're separating the wheat from the chaff and they're, you know, they're doing all the things they're doing to prepare the crops to be able to be sold. They're there on the, on the threshing floor and they would work all day and then they would eat a big meal. And then the workers would sleep on the threshing floor kind of spread around to basically like guard, uh, like all their stuff from someone coming in and stealing it. So this is not a situation where she sneaks into his private bedroom at his estate this is her going to find out of all these sleeping men that are scattered around this threshing floor, which one of them is him. So she didn't send her into a, a dangerous situation uh, in the sense that if it was completely private, I mean, it was semi-private, but it wasn't totally private. And so this was actually probably a very high integrity move for Naomi to send her in in this particular situation, um, which I think is a very interesting point that she's looking out for. Um, she tells her to uncover his feet. And there, there are a lot of people that try to make this into like a euphemism for something more. Um, but Hebrew scholars are like, that's just, that's kind of just our own American, like we've just been exposed to, to we've seen too many movies, you know, uh, that in Hebrew it would have meant like she uncovered his feet. That's what it would have meant. And uh, presumably, presumably, like just waiting for him to wake up because his feet are cold, something like that, maybe. But it's like, it's literally like she doesn't cover his feet. No need to read more into it. Um, and then when she tells, she tells Ruth, he will tell you what to do. In other words, he, he knows customarily what is happening in this moment. And so you take your next cue from him. He'll walk you through the next part because this is normal to them. Um, now, it might not be 100% normal, you know, like there may be some things here and there, but it's far more normal to them than it would be to us. And so we really cannot read this with Western eyes because, um, like I said, we've just, we've been exposed to too much stuff. Uh, to them, it was probably right on point. And so look at verse uh, 6. 
So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and, and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, Ruth, Ruth goes off on her own here. Naomi was like, you do this, 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 and then like, then he'll tell you what to do. And Ruth's like, nope, not I, like she's like, this is why I'm here. Um, and uh, there's a beauty to that. That's really, that's really incredible. She, she knew that he was qualified as a redeemer. She knew that he was related to her family. She knew that he was a man of means. This is her way of finding out, are, are you willing to redeem me? She just asks him. She uses that language right there. I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I'm seeking pro- like protection and covering from you. Talked about this last week where, where God uses this imagery to talk about what he does for Israel and for his children. He, he gathers them under his wings like a, like a mama bird and the baby birds. It's, there's protection there. There's, there's comfort. There's warmth. There's shelter. There's refuge. All those things are there. She's looking at him and she's basically saying, I, uh, I am completely vulnerable. Well, Will you bring me under your protection as a redeemer? Now, we don't really know why she changed the plan. There's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about that. You know, if she should have or if she didn't, was she manipulating him? And was this what whole one big scheme? And does this mean it's okay for this cultural thing to change? And there's, there's all kinds of things that we want to read into this moment. And it's probably just one big journey in missing the point if you want to go down any of those roads. You know? Sometimes it's the Bible, it just can it just be like simply, can it just be this, you know? We don't have to deduce all these things from it and arrive at all these conclusions and applications. This is just this is what happened here. I'll talk a little bit more about like maybe what was going on behind the scenes and some of the more like bird's eye view ideas culturally. I'll talk more about that next week, but for today, let's just accept the fact that this is what happened. She changed the plan. She asked him, will you be our, like, will you redeem me? Look at how he handles it in verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. And that you've not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So here, here's a man who, like, this is like a, this is a, a true, like, man here. He's in a situation that he could have used to his advantage in some way. He's got the, uh, this vulnerable foreigner widow. It's midnight. He, he could have done a number of things, but what does he do? He blesses her. He blesses her. 
He encourages her. He talks about how kind this is of her, that this kindness to him is even greater than the kindness shown uh, to Naomi. Um, he says, yes, I, I, I will be your redeemer. I am qualified and I am willing. It's a, it's a powerful moment. If you go on to, if you go on to read, uh, he, he tells her to kind of like, like stay with us tonight. So no, it's not safe for you to travel basically. And, uh, sends her back the next day and it's, it's, we'll finish off the story next week, but it's just a really beautiful moment. Um, and so in thinking through it, you know, you think about the, the general story arc up to this point is that you, you have a widow and I'll focus on Ruth. Naomi, she's in the mix, of course. But you have a widow who's in a situation she couldn't change. And her only hope was a qualified, willing redeemer. Then she f- finds Boaz, who is a qualified and willing redeemer. And so Ruth is redeemed. Widow. Situation she couldn't change. Her only hope is a willing and qualified redeemer. Boaz, willing, qualified. Ruth gets redeemed. Like that's the, that's the story arc. And there are times when God, uh, in him writing this, this book of ours that is such a gift, there are times when he has worked all kinds of stuff into the like left side of the book, you know, like the first two thirds, to help us understand the last third. That the Old Testament and the New Testament are, they are like, they're really not separate. We've separated them because we have to like chop it up to understand it. But it's this one, this, this one big work. And he's given us some things in the Old Testament to help us. Uh, he's basically told us a story to help us understand this like bigger, intang- kind of like sometimes we struggle to kind of like make it tangible enough to understand it. So he's like, okay, so to help you understand redemption, let me tell you a story about this woman named Ruth and what happened to her. And then the connections that we make, we are supposed to drag these into like our current, like we're supposed to understand the gospel more because of a story like this. And so for us, if you want to turn in your Bible, go to... See which one will I use the most? Let's go to go to Ephesians two. That'd be fine. If we want to understand the message of of the Bible in many in like maybe just in smaller forms, there are a couple of different ways that could be explained. Um, and so this is not the only way, but. God built in this idea of a kinsman redeemer. He built this into Israel. As they practiced it to understand this concept as applied to something that's much deeper. And so for Ruth, she was a widow in a situation she couldn't change and her only hope was a qualified and willing redeemer. Here's our situation, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of a disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Jump down to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a situation that we could not change. And our only hope was that someone would come and rescue us from that. Right? I mean, it, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's, there's no, a, a dead person cannot revive themselves. A, a dead person must be, you have to be acted on by an out, something from the outside has to happen in order to bring you back to life. And so there was nothing we could do about it, just like there was nothing that Ruth could do about it. Her only hope was a willing, qualified redeemer. Our only hope, willing and qualified redeemer. So we find, we find out in the story that Boaz is qualified and that Boaz is willing. So the obvious question would be, is Jesus qualified and is Jesus willing? Well, my argument would be that he is qualified. Uh, first of all, uh, is he a kinsman? Is he related to us? I'm going to run through these really fast. You don't have to turn to him. Just listen. Is he related to us? Well, Genesis 1.27, it might sound familiar to those of you in our community groups, says God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. That word image is the same one used a couple of chapters later to describe uh, a, a father's relationship to his son. That children are the image of their parents. And so male and female, Adam and Eve, you and me, we're all created in the image that there's a, there's a family resemblance between us because we're connected. Philippians 2, starting 5, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though who is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likeness, same word used to talk about image. Born in the likeness of men. Galatians 4 When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, keyword, those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So is Jesus related to you and to me? Yes or no? All right, good. Good. Glad we're on the same page. So he is qualified in the sense that he is a kinsman. Is he qualified in, the, in his ability to pay? Boaz had all kind of money. He could afford to buy the land. Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy. There we go. He's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. He's also rich in love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Okay, situation we couldn't change, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he has so much that he can not only like he could not only redeem you, he could could share all the splendors of that with you forever and ever and never run out. So I think he can handle it. Philippians 2, let's skip down. Colossians 1, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything might be preeminent. He, he, he can handle your debt. He can, he, can, he can buy your little piece of land that you need. He, he can buy that soul that has rebelled against God. He, he can pay the price for that. So is, is he a qualified redeemer? He's related to you and he is more than able to pay for it. So yes, he is qualified. But is he willing? Philippians 2 says, verse 8 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Is he willing? Yeah, he's willing. He did it already. It's not something that he has yet to do. It is something that he has already done. And so for us, it's, the, it's that recognition of like our inability to revive ourselves. Our inability to breathe life into the dead bones of our sinful souls. We were in this desperate situation. And our qualified and willing Redeemer stepped up and said, I got you. I will die to pay the price for you so that you too can walk in freedom, so that you don't have to worry, you don't have to scavenge, you don't have to... You don't have to struggle. You don't have to wonder that your your future could be secure. Think about these two widows, and here they are terrified of what their future looks like. And then Boaz, the hero, comes in. And because of his kindness and saying yes to the Lord, and Ruth's kindness and saying yes to the Lord, and Naomi's kindness and saying yes to the Lord, all of them are walking in fullness. All of them have a hope and a future. It all weaves together. Here's the last scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That, that is a secure future. That is a secure present. That is who our Redeemer is. You know? And so if you have recognized 
your neediness and recognized him as your redeemer, then he has redeemed you. There's, there's nothing left to be paid for. It was a, a sacrifice made once for all, for all of your stuff. So whatever you are walking through right now, this redemption still applies. You, you have not forfeited this redemption. You're not that powerful, you know. Like you can't undo what God has done. You just, you can't, you can't do it. Now you can, you can ignore it. You can put your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and act like it's not happening. You can, you know, we can still rebel and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, but you're not going to undo this redemption that your kinsman redeemer has secured for you. And so I hope that this brings hope into, into your situation, whatever it may be. The fact that he has done these things for you. You might not feel it. You might look around you and wonder, based on my circumstances, I'm not sure if this has all happened. It, it, has, it has happened. Just r- relax into it. This redemption that he has provided for you. And if you have never come to that point before where, where you have recognized your, your own need for a redeemer to step in and change your situation then today can be the day of redemption for you. Like it's, what day better than today? And so as we respond in a couple of minutes, you may be responding as someone who is redeemed and is just incredibly grateful, or, or you, need, you need to be reminded of that, or you're just in, in awe of, of not the fact that you are redeemed, but who, is, who your redeemer is. But you also might be responding as someone who's, who's really never, never had that moment where you came before God and said, are you willing? I recognize my need, but are you, you're the qualified redeemer. Would you do it? This can be the day for you. And so if that, if that is you, if, if you have never done that before, we're going to have some folks on the front row who would, in a few minutes as we're moving around, who would love to talk with you and pray with you about that. And if that's not really your style and you want to hang around, there's a, I, I'll, any of us would, would love to have that conversation after we dismiss. If you just want to talk in another kind of setting, that's fine. But as we respond, there's a couple of things that will happen. You're going to, you can come and pray. These steps will be open. We're going, to, we're going to sing some songs that are just continuing to just exalt who our Redeemer is. Um, as we're singing those songs, if you want to come and pray, you can do that. Uh, we'll have two communion lines. Uh, you don't have to be a member of our church to be a part of that. You, you take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take it. And you think about this, as many people as are, are in here, over and over again, they're saying the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. In other words, this is the price paid for your redemption, and your redemption, and your redemption, and your redemption. There's, it is from the riches of his grace that he does that. So what a visual, what a beautiful reminder that there's enough of Jesus to go around. And so all of those things will be happening in the next few minutes. Whatever connects with you the most, whatever helps you deal with whatever he's stirring in you, I'd encourage you to do that. Let's, let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I don't, I don't, know, that, um, I don't know that we'll ever really you know, fully grasp the, the depths of our... Uh, the depths of, I mean, just how dead we were. I know it sounds so dumb to say it that way, but to realize that, that we, we could do nothing for ourselves, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, 
when our only hope was to have someone breathe life into us, to pay the price for us to be made alive again. Help us to recognize the, just the, how powerful that is, how needy we were, but yet that, may that just be eclipsed by the beauty of who our Redeemer is. The things you have done for us in redeeming us, it says so much about who you are, and that is what we respond to. And so, Father, whether, uh, well, I'm sure we're all interacting with these ideas in different places, and I'm thankful that you can meet us all in those places. And so, whether thinking through these things for the first time or um, just a lifetime of this, just coming back to, again, you're, the beauty of you are as our Redeemer, Across the room, we just tend, tend to us in these moments. Help us to respond in spirit and in truth. May we pray and receive communion and sing and do so together in a way that is just a, a powerful reminder of how you've created family out of strangers. And that adoption into your family is something that uh, is open-ended. There's always room for more. And we love you and we give you these moments and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, our communion lines are open. You can come whenever you're ready.